Well, Merry Christmas. However you count it, it's definitely the Christmas season now. If you are uh, from Branson, we started on November 1st, right? If you don't have your lights up, you're in trouble. And uh, if you are holding to your traditional values from wherever you came from, you don't start seeing Christmas till after Thanksgiving, right? And uh, if you have the Advent calendar, I guess December 1st is the start for you. But whichever standard you use, it's Christmas time. And so we are very much looking forward to spending time uh, as Christians this time of year, uh, just thanking the Lord for the gift of His Son, Jesus Christ, and to be thinking about those things and the implications of the birth of Jesus Christ. And uh, one of the things that uh, comes to my mind is the wealth that this little baby brought into the world um, when he came. There's been some amazing transfers of wealth at different times in history. One not so far from us and not too long ago uh, was a lady by the name of Christy Walton. Christy inherited $15 billion back in 2005. The reason uh, she inherited that money was primarily because she was married to John Walton, who was Sam Walton's son. So when Sam Walton passed away, he left his inheritance to his four sons. And then tragically and unexpectedly, of course, John Walton passed away in in an airplane crash. And so Christy inherited her husband's fortune. So we could say, we could ask the question, what did she do to gain $15 billion? Uh, I'm sure there's a number of uh, small things, but primarily she was married and had become one with the son of a very wealthy man. And so she inherited this uh, vast resources, this vast wealth that came to her. It might not be our first thought when we think about the Christmas story, but it's actually an inheritance story. It's not a random inheritance story. It is a, the greatest story of all time, the greatest history or inheritance story of all time. And the part that's maybe mind-boggling to us is it's actually our inheritance story. That is a, a story about a great inheritance that's been given to us. And so this morning, I would like to look at the Christmas story from this inheritance perspective, And if you were going to ask why we would want to look at it from this perspective, that's because God's Word presents it this way. So maybe if you could turn with me to Galatians chapter 4, I think you'll see that that's the case as we read verses 4 through 7. Galatians 4, 4 through 7. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, So that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So we see here just in a quick uh, summary God sent His Son so that we might be redeemed out of our present state that we found ourselves in and into a new family. And if sons in that new family, then heirs. And so that's what we'll be looking at this morning. Let's open a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for bringing each of us here today. And as we think about these things in the perspective of the Christmas story, um, we uh, realize that the work that you've done in our hearts to bring us and draw us to you is an amazing thing for which you deserve glory and praise for all eternity. And so, Father, as we look into your word today, I pray that these things might Come into our hearts in a new and a special way, and that we might love you and and serve you with greater love and greater um, 
just dedication and sincerity, realizing what it is that you've truly done for us. In your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'll just set a little bit of a framework. Uh, the grand story of all things began with uh, just the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They, they are, they're eternal beings, and they've always been here, of course. Nothing else but the Godhead. But at a point in time, the Father determined to create an amazing universe out of nothing. And we're told that He created it through His Son. I'll read a couple of verses there. In John 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And so we have from the Godhead, now we have a creation made through the Son. And Colossians 1.16 says, For by him all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. So at this point in time, obviously, we still have the Godhead, but now we also have this created universe, which includes material and immaterial things, animals and plants and humans and spirit beings and stars and galaxies. It's all being created through Christ and for Christ. And so we understand that it was created for the Son and through the Son. And this Son, we understand to be the second person of the Godhead, that He then, we're told, left heaven left glory, and came to live in his creation, in the midst of his creation, and he did this a couple thousand years ago. And we're told in John 1.14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So like in creation, God uh, chose to create at a point in time. Uh, no one gave him advice and said, now is the time, or you should probably think about creating something. Uh, he just, in his own will, determined that he wanted to create all these things through his son. And now, again, at his predetermined time, according to his own desires, he chose to send his son. And so that's how this passage starts in Galatians, that God sent his son. And this second person of the Godhead, through whom all was created, became fully human. He was born of a virgin in Bethlehem as a Jewish baby boy from the tribe of Judah, and once this second person of the Godhead took on humanity, he would always remain a human. Without losing his deity, of course, he's fully divine, but he's also fully human, and his we was given the name Jesus. Now, that's quite an amazing event, because for the first time now, we have this eternal God who is found in a human being. He has taken on flesh, and he always will be human forever and ever. That seems like quite a commitment, doesn't it? Kind of a, a mind-boggling thought to think that God would take on humanity, humanity and always remain human. There must be some specific purpose that's of great significance that would cause him to choose this. In Colossians 1.19, we're told, "...for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell." And in chapter Colossians 2.9, it says, For him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. So here we have a human who is fully God. And so we have this mind-blowing event where a human has come into the humanity that he has created. And now we have a human that can still a storm. We have a human who can walk on water. We have a human who can bring people back to life from the dead. 
obviously we understand he's not only human, but he is a human. We have a human who can feed 5,000 from five loaves and two fish. We have a human who has ascended up into heaven, a human who knows all things and has created all things, whether they be visible or invisible, a human for which all things were created. And the Christmas story is just now beginning. So this God-man Jesus did not come merely to take on humanity. We're told in Philippians that he didn't come as an experiment or as a venture. He did it in realizing that it would be a humiliating experience to add humanity to who he was. And not only that, once he added humility, the passage in Philippians tells us that that humility continued to grow and that he was treated very poorly and he was finally crucified. But Hebrews 12 tells us that it was for the joy that was set before him that he endured this humiliation because he came to move through that humiliation onto glory, which is exactly what he did. And we're told that after his death and his resurrection, Jesus, the man, the human Jesus, ascended into heaven and has been exalted at the right hand of the Father. And we're told, so that the name of Jesus, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So now we have a man seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. He's a God-man, but he is a true man. Now this Jesus is very much aware of those who are like him. Fellow humans, you and I. He's far more than just aware of us. We're told in Ephesians chapter 3 that he loves those that are his to the degree that is impossible for us as humans to comprehend and that his love surpasses knowledge. And we're told that he has become like us so that he could bring us to God and not just into God's presence, but into God's family. Now, all mankind finds themselves in a different family, and by nature we're told that they're in Adam's family, they're rebellious, they're enslaved to sin, and they're condemned to death. And then we're told here in this Galatians passage that the perfect law of God was given to show man, especially the Jewish people, that they were sinful and they fell short of God's righteous standard. And while the law was perfect and while the law was good, it didn't help sinful man other than to absolutely confirm man's sinfulness and to show him his need for a savior. And so we pick it up here in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. It tells us, when the fullness of time had come, when God deemed it that it was the proper time to continue to unveil his salvation plan, he sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem man so that man might be adopted as sons of God and as sons to be heirs forever, that all that God has. So I just want to recap that real quick. That's just kind of the introduction for where we're going to be spending our time here in Galatians. But a quick recap. There was nothing except the triune God. And then we had the universe that was created through the Son and for the Son. And then we had the Son becoming humiliated and taking on humanity and dying for the sins of humanity. And then we see his humility being a man and dying turned to great glory and the God-man Jesus being exalted to the highest place of glory forever. And now we are going to start talking about the implications of all this for us. And we just read in Galatians chapter 4 that Christ's coming was directly related to preparing us to receive 
the inheritance as his sons. Now, we keep talking about the adoption of sons or the inheritance of sons, and the reason is because Paul was writing to a, a Greek and a Roman audience, and he was using adoption in the way that they would use adoption. And in that way, uh, in that culture, adoption was not child-centered. We often think of adoption as a, there's a great need, there's a child that doesn't have a good family, and so people come and care for that child and bring them into their family. But this was not the, the focus of the Roman or the Greek uh, culture with regard to adoption in that uh, culture, it was focused more on the parent or on the family. And there would be oftentimes a, a man who had gone older in years and did not have a, an heir, somebody to carry on his name, somebody to take his inheritance. And so they would adopt a son. And it wasn't somebody that was in great need. They would adopt the one that they thought would be the very best to carry on their family name and to have their family inheritance and to continue on their line. And so even the Roman emperors would do this, uh, bringing in uh, their nephews and other ones, adopting them into the family so that they could carry on the family's name and also carry on uh, the, the line. And so we're told here that, uh, that been, they've been given the right to adopt. So when we're thinking here, we might have the first thought in our mind is, whoa, God looked at me and... I seemed like a qualified candidate to be his adopted son because he wanted me to carry on his name and, and um, be the one responsible for his inheritance. Uh, you're kind of on the right track there, but it tells us that we have been adopted in Christ. And so, yes, we are found to be worthy, but our worthiness is not in ourselves, of course, but in him, which is something to the praise of his glory, that we would be brought into this position as adopted sons because of who God is and who Christ is and the work that he wants to accomplish through that. So what inheritance are we talking about that we're moving towards? Well, the inheritance here is the son's inheritance. And you remember that we, we've read that the, the son was the one who created all things through him and all things for him. And we pick this up in Romans chapter 8, verse 16. In Romans 8, 16 and 17 says this, it says, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified with him. And so here he, he's, he's, um, he's talking that, he tells us that we are children and then heirs and fellow heirs or co-heirs with Christ. He said, provided that we suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified with him. If we will submit to the same suffering that his son submitted to, then we will be glorified with the same glory that his son has been glorified with. And share in that glory. 1 Corinthians explains this a little bit, and it says that to suffer with Christ is to walk the same foolish path that Jesus walked. So if we are to suffer with him, what does it mean? It means that we must come to the place where we uh, submit to the foolishness of the cross, that the cross is the only means to glorification. That's what Jesus did. Obviously, uh, if there had been another way, he would have gone that way. And we even have uh, him talking in the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, talking to the Father, maybe a last-ditch thing. Is there another way here? And the conclusion is, no, this is the Father's will. There is not another way. And so he submits to this. 
And he tells us that those who suffer with Christ in the foolishness of the cross will also share with Christ in the glorious inheritance. So all those who suffer with Christ are the ones who come to hold the cross as the only way of our salvation. So those who put any stock in any of their own contribution to their own righteousness, however big or small, who refuse to die with Christ will not share in this inheritance that we're talking about. And so I just want to pause here for a second and ask you a very important question. Are you certain that you have submitted to the foolishness of the cross? What makes it foolish? It's not related to us. That's what makes it foolish to us. It's not related to us. It's not, it's not related to our wisdom. It's not related to our strength. It's not related to our goodness. It's not related to our identity. It's not related to our contribution. And that seems foolish to us. And we die. And we leave everything behind as one does in death. And we have not one shred of our own dignity to talk about or to glory in, not one speck of our own righteousness to offer in this transaction. And it is for this reason that the wise and the powerful struggle because they all want to offer something, they want to contribute something, and it's foolish to them that they are not able to do that. If we're going to suffer with Christ, then we must lose it all if we are going to gain it all. And 1 Corinthians closes that passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 31, so that those who boast, boast in the Lord. Now, many people have sat in church for years, and they have never submitted to the foolishness of the cross. They have either knowingly or unknowingly held on to some sense of their own dignity, their own value, their own worth, their own contribution, and they have not, at least to this point in time, submitted to the foolishness of the cross, or they have not submitted to Christ crucified as their only hope of salvation. And so before we continue to talk about this inheritance, I want to make sure that you are, are sure that you are part of the story that we are talking about. And not let your story be one that you stand before the Lord and there is some eye that's left in your salvation. Because that is not saving faith. That is not a child of God. If that is the case, then this is not your inheritance because you're not his. Saving faith is believing in Christ crucified only for our salvation. I hope that's true of each one here. And if not, I, I pray that you would come to the point where you accept that so that you might be able to continue on with us as we continue to look at this. God tells us that he redeemed us so that we might receive the adoption as sons. Back here in Galatians chapter 4, verse 6, it says, And because you are sons, God has set the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. The Bible has much to say about our position in the family. I'm going to look at just one additional passage that gives some details of this. It's in Hebrews chapter 2. If you could turn with me there, I'd like you to. Hebrews chapter 2. talking about our position as a son in the family and what this relationship means in this family of God. It says Hebrews chapter 2, and I'm going to start at verse um, 10. It says, For it was fitting that he 
for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have the same source or same nature. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Verse 14, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. That's the redemption that we've been talking about. Verse 16, for surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. And so here we have in this passage that we just read three times that Jesus and believers are called brothers. And he says that he is not ashamed to be called a brother with these others that he's talking about, fellow believers. That the Godhead took on flesh and blood in order to open up the way of redemption so that he could be an actual brother to us, bringing us into the same family, the same family with the same inheritance. And so he has this picture of Jesus as the the eldest brother in the family and we as his siblings. And he says that he's not ashamed to call us brothers in his family. Legally, we're in his family. We have the right to be co-heirs in this inheritance. And unlike the Son of God, we were not by nature in the right family. We were in line for a, a far different family inheritance, and we were part of a far different family. We often say that Christmas is a time for family. Uh, I think that's because we often have more time with our family around Christmas than we can other times of the year. Sometimes grown kids come home from wherever they may be living in their lives. Uh, grandkids may be able to see their grandparents uh, once or twice a year, and Christmas might be one of those times. Parents may be able to take a little bit more time off work, spend time with their kids. College kids might come home for a few weeks. And how wonderful it is to spend that time together with family, but it pales in comparison to Christmas being a time of rejoicing, being sons and daughters in God's family. And he tells us here in Ephesians, or in Galatians, that the Holy Spirit bears witness in our heart that we belong in this family. We might have the inclination that, yeah, I'm part of the family, but I don't really belong. I'm not really worthy to be, you know, considered a son or a daughter in this particular family. But the Holy Spirit, who is God himself, was working within us And he's encouraging us to cry out, Abba, Father, to speak of this relationship that we have with God himself. We often hear this Abba, Father, as Daddy or Papa, uh, as a young child, would would intimately call their their parent, their father. And that certainly is true. Uh, But that's not the full meaning of this. You remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus was under great distress, he calls out, Abba, Father, if it be your will. 
And so it's, it's more than just a childish term. It's a term of great intimacy about our sense of truly belonging in the fullest relational sense pos- possible. And the Holy Spirit, God himself, is encouraging us to cry out in this kind of belonging relationship with the Father. We truly are a part of this family. And it's not like we're kind of belong in the family or we're provisionally in the family. We really belong relationally. And God himself is saying, call your dad Abba Father. And legally we're in because we are co-heirs with Jesus Christ. And Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brothers. Christmas is a time of year that we enjoy spending time with family, but could it even hold a candle to understanding the significance of the family that we have been brought into that is far more significant, significant because of what God has done through his son? He then goes on and says, because you are sons, then an heir. So with our changed identity comes uh, rights and privileges of being in and belonging, truly belonging in this family. Uh, A few years back, when we were in South Africa, we had the opportunity to um, care for two infants, uh, one after another, not not at the same time. The first infant uh, had been in the hospital for a few weeks, a couple weeks, I think, and had been born premature. And when he came to our house, he was about four and a half pounds. He had been abandoned. And so we had the opportunity to raise him from that point. He was already in the system to be adopted internationally, but that adoption takes a a certain amount of time. And so we were able to care for this child from birth up to eight months. And then this child was adopted to a family in Denmark. And then right after that, actually, we had a week of overlap. There was another girl that had been uh, in a bad situation, and she had been brought into our house as well. And uh, same situation, same organization. It was another international adoption, but that takes time. And so we brought this second child into our house, and we cared for this another little girl. And then she was adopted when she was 10 months old to Denmark. And so now every Christmas and sometimes even throughout the year, we get news from these two families that adopted these two children. And they tell us all about their family, and specifically, they, are, they know that we are engaged with the two that we had some time with. They tell us specifically how they're doing in the family, and they send us pictures of them playing soccer, or them dancing, or them uh, speaking Danish, because that's what they speak now. And we can see that they have been fully embraced in this family, that that is their new identity, and that all that that family has is now theirs. And in both of these cases, There are no other children in the family other than the adopted children that they have. And interestingly, something we may not always think about with adoption is when you are adopted, before you can be adopted in a new family, you have to sever all your relationships with the old family. And so that there is no legal right for you as an adopted child to your biological parents' inheritance. That is not your family. That that relationship was severed and a new relationship was created and you are in a new family. And that is how it is with us, that we have a new identity in the family of God and all the glory, of course, goes to him for that, that he would so fully accept us into his family. 
In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul tells us that the Father has adopted us to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. According to the purpose of his will, this gives us a real good idea why Jesus was willing to take on humanity. Through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So we have been given full access to the family's resources for the purpose of bringing glory to the Father. This is exactly the idea of the adoption. You brought a capable man into your house who could then carry on your family name and carry on your family's possessions and and, uh, estate. And we have full access to this. It It goes on in that passage to say that these Family resources have been given to us for the purpose of glorifying the Father. He says that we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing. We have been lavished with the riches of His grace. We have been lovingly chosen to be holy and blameless. We have been redeemed through His blood and our sins have been forgiven. All in the context that we have been adopted into this family for the praise of His glory. And so with our new identity comes a a legal inheritance. If we're sons, then heirs. And this inheritance is spoken of a number of times throughout Scripture. We read one in the Scripture uh, reading this morning in Ephesians chapter 1. Peter tells us that this inheritance is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. We've been brought into the family, and this is the inheritance that is yours. The author of Hebrews tells us that we have an eternal, unshakable, or, or a kingdom that cannot be destroyed, that we have as adopted children in this family. John in Revelation tells us much. He tells us, for one thing, it is like a bride adorned for her husband, that, there is, that our inheritance is one of pure beauty. There's no crying, there's no pain. There's great physical beauty in the things that he describes there in Revelation 21. The throne of God and the Lamb will be there, and it says that we will see his face. And Revelation 21 22 gives us a whole bunch of other things. But I want to look at one passage in Romans. If you turn with me to Romans chapter 8 regarding our inheritance. And this is not inclusive. There's many things about our inheritance, but this is what I just need to focus on this morning. This is Romans chapter 8 starting in verse 14. Romans 8, 14 says, For all who were led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not inherit the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified with him. And so he talks about this intimate relationship that we have with God and the the interaction that we can have. In verse 18, he says, For I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And so he says, regardless of what you might be facing now, if you can keep in mind the inheritance, because regardless of how heavy and difficult the things that you're going through now, they won't even come up into the conversation once you receive the inheritance that's been given to you. 
chapter 8, verse 21, says that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to the corruption to obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. He's talking about this freedom from corruption and freedom to experience fully the glory of God and to be a part of that, not as a, not as a person who sees the glory of God, but a person who is involved in part of the glory of God and sharing in that glory of God from a very close proximity to the one whose face we see. Chapter 8, verse 23 says, And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So he says, I don't know what your physical body situation is working out for you, uh, but it will be nothing that you talk about once you are able to receive the full inheritance of the redeemed bodies and the glorious uh, res results that will be a part of that forever that you'll be able to experience. Chapter 8, verse 29 and 30. We could even go back to 28 in this context of this adoption and our inheritance. Chapter 8, 28 says, And we know that all, things, that all those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. And then the focus here, for those who have, he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called, and those he called, he also justified, and those he justified, he also glorified. And so he has brought us into the family, and he is molding and shaping us into the image of of our older brother into the image of Jesus Christ. And he says, ultimately, we can be 100% sure it's going to result in glorification. And then in verse 8, verse 32, in case you thought maybe he was holding something back, it says in chapter 8, verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not with him graciously give us all things? All things were created for him, through him and for him, and we are co-heirs with that. And he says, if he gave us the son, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? That's not all. That's just from this one passage. We could talk about things like eternal life as a part of our inheritance. We could talk about pleasures forevermore as a part of our inheritance. And so this is the Christmas story as presented here in Galatians chapter 4, and it is the greatest inheritance story ever told and it is our story. You may have heard, with great power comes great responsibility. We could put another thought in here, with great position in the family. With great position in the family comes great what? What do you put there? I'd encourage you just to think about that. Just leave it open for now. I'll leave it open for you to think about. I'll throw a few things to get your, your mind thinking. But with great position comes great opportunity. Being a part of God's family brings great opportunity. With great position brings great responsibility. We could use the same one there. Um, change it a little bit. With great position comes Great, a great life of substance, meaning, value, significance. I think this is the one that maybe I would lean more towards uh, because of, of, the, 
the value of that. It's not a crushing weight. With great position comes great substance. It's not a crushing weight in that sense. It's a meaningful weight. It has meaning. Our life has meaning as a result of what God has done for us. With great position comes great purpose. With great position comes the, the, the potential for great impact. And whatever it is that you put in there, with great position comes great... Then the question after you have, have kind of nailed the one that you think sums it up best is, then how then shall we live? How then shall we live if these things are true? And if you're not comfortable with um, Uncle Ben's advice to Peter Parker and Spider-Man and you want to use something more, a different template, you can use the one, to whom much is given, much is required. It's the same idea that God has given us. It's a scriptural truth that God has given us something of great, great, great value. And to whom much is given, much is required. God sent his son and it will never be the same again. 15 billion is nothing compared to the immeasurable riches that are ours in Jesus Christ forever and ever. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Father, we just come to you this morning. We only barely can get our mind around the beginning of what we're talking about from your word this morning. We can only just get a small grasp. We think of Paul's prayers, what he prayed for each of the churches, that they would really get this, that they would really understand these things because he knew that it would transfer their, transform their life if they could grasp it. Father, and I pray the same for us here today, that we would understand the truth that you have revealed to us through your word regarding the sending of your son so that we might become a part of your family. Father, we know that all these things were done for the praise of your glory. Father, I pray that you would give us each wisdom of how to live our lives in a substantive, weighty, important, impactful way. Not for ourselves, Lord, but that you might receive all the glory that is due you for what you have done for us. In Jesus' name we pray.